Welcome again to Shelf Esteem. Today we take you back to ZestFest 2019 to meet author Noel Braun. ZestFest is an arts and community festival that celebrates modern ageing by challenging stereotypes, promoting health and longevity, and unlocking the possibilities that modern ageing can bring. Noel is certainly someone who embodies the ZestFest philosophy. He always dreamed of becoming an author, and later in life he discovered an intense desire to walk the Camino de Santiago pilgrimage trail in Europe. But Noel was in his 70th decade when he finally, in the face of huge personal trauma and tragedy, achieved those personal goals of his for the first time. He's now achieved them many times over, having done seven walking pilgrimages across France and Spain, and he's published three memoirs and two novels. Noel's books are, of course, available through PAE libraries, and in fact, we recorded this conversation with Noel on location at the Port Adelaide Library in October. Thank you, everyone, for um, coming along here. My name's Noel Braun. I was born on the 24th of December 1932, which makes me 86 going on 87 in the next... Um, a month or so, and I've got um, four children and eight grandchildren. I'm here in Adelaide and South Australia this week because last weekend I went to a conference up at uh, Bel Air, and it's Australian Friends of the Camino. And there are a number of these, what they call amigo groups around Australia, people who are very dedicated to the to the Camino de Santiago and to its um, preservation and to all the values and principles that, that it stands for. It was a wonderful weekend. Now, all my life I've had two ideas which I'd like to develop. One of them was to be a writer. I had a fairly busy career, plus raising a family of four. There wasn't very much time and I said, when I retire, I'm planning to be a writer and to have books published. Uh, I did a lot of writing during my corporate life for various management magazines, but I didn't really retire till I was about 70. Then I started writing and I had my first book published when I was 74. That was my writing career. Two novels. I was halfway through a third novel and um, an event occurred which completely changed the course of um, my life. I'd like you to meet my wife, Maris, my wife of 42 years. She grew up in a little country town in Victoria called Catamatite, not far from Shepparton, came off a farm. And that was um, a photo just um, shortly before uh, she died. She suffered depression um, and it grew over the years. I don't know if any of you have experienced depression or know of someone, but it's that very debilitating disease which saps people's energy and courage and confidence. Her two sisters had already died by suicide. She said she would never take her own life, but I think the pain just got too intense. So that was an event cataclysmic event in my life that completely turned everything upside down. It lost my sense of identity 
and I lost a uh, sort of a sense of purpose, challenged every value that I had. Now, I could have succumbed, like many people. I more or less um, took on the challenge there, and for a while I was out there wherever I could talking to people about the insidious nature of depression, and for God's sake, seek help. I'm still an advocate. I... Um, Put aside that novel, it's about 40,000 words, it's still there waiting, but I turned aside and I wrote this, No Way to Behave at a Funeral. It's the story of the first year of my grief journey. Now, Maris and I were travellers. Uh, she wouldn't travel for the last um, two or three years, however. She would get the guilts, you know, about spending all this money on herself when other people didn't have enough money to even to buy the basics. So we didn't travel a while, but after a year or so, my wife died in 2004, 15 years this month, 30th, the 30th is our anniversary. I started travelling again and I went to France and I lived in a little town called Chambéry. And I'd go to church, the cathedral on Sundays, and every now and then there was a group of pilgrims with their backpack on and they were getting a blessing before they went off to Santiago. And I thought, good idea. That was in 2006. It wasn't until 2010 that I walked my first Camino. I walked my first Camino. It gave me a sense of purpose. It gave me a structure because for a while I felt quite rudderless. So then of course I turned my writing to it. So I wrote the next two books. The day was made for walking and I guess I'll just keep on walking. They're about my various um, walks along the Camino. I regard the three of those books as a trilogy, a trilogy of my grief journey. Various stages at the same time it's a description for my spiritual journey and also the physical journey. And all my walks were dedicated to the memory of my wife. She walked with me. Maris walked with me all the way. And wherever I found a little church or chapel where candles were, I'd light a candle. And I've, I don't know, hundreds of candles I've lit across, um, across Europe by now. I'll just show you the routes that I've walked on this map. 2010, I walked from Le Puy to Jean-Pierre-de-Port, which is just on the French side of the Pyrenees. My plan originally was to cross the, the Pyrenees and stop at Pamplona, you know, where they run the bills. But as soon as my body saw those mountains, my body said, no way, no. So I cut the train back to Paris, but nine months later in 2011, I was back and continued on uh, to Santiago. This is a French map, Saint-Jacques, Saint-Jacques de Compostelle. Continued on to Finisterre, means the end of the earth. And um, in medieval days, it was the end of the earth. If you went any further, you'd fall off. Okay, that's uh, 1,500 kilometres. Do you think that was enough? 
even though I was walking for Maris by now, Pabug had really, um, I had succumbed. I've now got an incurable disease called, I don't know what it is, compostellitis. Uh, fortunately, it's not mortal. And in fact, it reinvigorates and gives life to people. And I've met many people who have got the same addiction. Some people go back and do the same route each time. But I think, no, I've got to do a different one each way. 2013, I went to Montpellier, across the Pyrenees at a different spot, and finished up here at Pointe de la Rena, which is um, on that Camino Francaise. The Camino Francaise, by the way, this red one, is the most popular, getting very crowded and more crowded each year. In fact, there's a lot of concern and worry. It'll be swamped and the infrastructure won't be able to cope. These other routes, there's far less people. It's far more comfortable. Do you do these walks all on your own or do you go with someone? Uh, yes, I prefer to walk alone because I enjoy the silence and the solitude. But I do seek company at night. Definitely seek company at night because um, I've met some wonderful people along the way. But it can be a challenge on your own because um, if you're unsure, you, you have to you know, reach out and ask. If you go with someone, you um, are inclined to talk to them rather than to other people. If you want to talk to people, you've got to reach out. The other thing all my life I wanted to be was to be multilingual. Quia sera una cama, per favor. I'd like a bed, please. I know in a number of languages how to ask for a beer and also for a flat white. So they're the three essentials, aren't they? What else do you need? A bed, a beer and a flat white. <laughs> I know you said you'd like to walk alone. Oh, thank you. Have, how do you feel? How do your children feel about that? And have they asked to come along? And if so, have you walked with them at all over the years? Well, I've got four children: two boys and two girls. <laughs> My daughter Angela says, "Go for it, Dad." My other daughter Jacinta, Maris used to say about Jacinta, "No need for any of us to do any worrying. Jacinta will do it all for us." So she worries, she's constantly saying, even, even yesterday she said to me, where are you, Dad? You know, when are you coming home? Because she lives in Jindabyne too, down the road. Boys don't worry. I secretly think that my, my kids are, um, you know, quite relieved and, and happy because they tell me about many of their contemporaries, you know, their parents are struggling. Okay. Uh, the question was um, what type of sleeping accommodation is available? It ranged. A lot of it was in dormitory style. There's quite an infrastructure of places where you might be able to stay. And they're run by different organisations. And sometimes they provided meals, often little bars and restaurants around where they had a pilgrim's menu and you could get a meal quite cheaply. And then sometimes you'll cook for yourself. And um, you would generally work out that whatever it cost you in Spain, you would double that amount for France. 
Now, if you wanted, you could go up market and get yourself into a, like the equivalent of a BNB and pay 70 or 80 plus euro. And every now and then you did. As you've got older, have you organised that you don't carry everything between towns, you know, like your full backpack? Because I've heard that you can organise for that to be done. Yes, there are places where transport companies will take it through and you just walk with enough for the day. No, I carried the lot. <laughs> On my first trip, when my bag was weighed at the airport, it said 18 kilo. And I thought, that's far too much. So I managed to get it down to about 10. Even so, it was a tremendous relief. The great joy of the day was to get that backpack off. <laughs> so that makes me um, wonder then, you said you were a traveller beforehand. I was just wondering how much um, in your travelling you walked distances. Was, was walking part of your travelling life before? So what sort of preparation did you do when you decided that this was the walk that you were going to do? I've um, always been a gym junkie. I wasn't really introduced to bushwalking till my 50s when I became a scout leader. And I used to think, God, this is wonderful. I've missed out on all this bushwalking. So I've been doing it. And of course, where I live now, it's marvellous. We've got all the mountains there and all the bush tracks there. Um, I was going to say the Camino is definitely on my bucket list, but so is writing at some stage, maybe when I retire. With the writing, you said that you started this around the retirement age. Did you find it easy to start with? Did everything flow or did you rip up what you first started and, and did it get easier? Or Yes, it's a laborious process because um, you, you write your first draft. It's usually rubbish. You've got to rewrite it and rewrite it and rewrite it and rewrite it. And then you've got to get somebody with a nasty, critical outlook to read it for you. Constructively, mind you. I understand what you say about going back and back and back uh, and your reasons for it. But have you ever considered other countries? I mean, look at all the <laughs> places. I mean, you could climb Kilimanjaro or Mont Blanc or whatever else you like. But why do you – I mean, apart from the reasons you've already told us – yeah. Have you any challenges in another country yet, or even Australia? Well, I've d I have walked in Australia, but what appeals to be about the Camino, it's a separate culture, and it's um, the values which it promotes, spiritual values, one being, of course, the, the idea of hospitality, welcoming just for one welcoming all comers, no matter who and no matter what. That has immense implications. If we really practised hospitality, we would erode the barriers, you know, that are built up between us. And I see it as particularly important these days because I think mistrust seems to be on the rise, which are mistrust and suspicion. Uh, and also the idea of inclusiveness. What else? What other values? Uh, acceptance, tolerance, patience for the slow ones. Nowadays, the closer they get to Santiago, 
or more competitive it is. When you've got about 2,000 people turning up a day in Santiago, um, that's an immense strain on the, on, on the infrastructure. And it's like a race and it's not a race, definitely not. But yes, I've now reached um, nearly 10 years of walking the Camino and I am thinking, what else can I do? That you know presents a challenge that gives one opportunity to step out of the comfort zone. But I haven't decided yet which. And in 2017, I went to Vesele and walked from Vesele through to the Pyrenees there, back to Saint Jean Pierre de Port. Except I made a detour. And I went to a place called Rocamador. It's a marvellous place to visit. If you could imagine a medieval village sort of chucked at a cliff face and just hanging on, that's Rocamador. It was a very famous site in medieval days. And then I went over to Geneva and walked to Le Puy. And in addition to that, I'd worked in two different hostels. And the French would ask me three questions. Uh, the first one was, oh, Australia. Well, oh, it's a long way. Don't you have places in Australia where you can walk? Um, so you explained, well, yes, but this is a, a pilgrimage. This has got a spiritual inheritance here, the Camino and all of that. I'd understand that. The next question was, oh, you're speaking French. You don't speak French in Australia. So I usually come up with a joke, but for the fact that Captain Cook beat La Perouse, we could have been speaking French. I don't know what you would have spoken over here, but anyway, that's in, in the East. And then the third question was, would you mind telling us how old you are? So when I tell them, I'd, I'd, you know, I've had hairy Frenchmen come and give me a kiss. <laughs> you know, ma vie, you know, etc. But the potential is immeasurable. Even though people, when they think about the Camino, they only think about that red line, there are actually around about 80,000 kilometres of routes which are regarded as Camino routes, all leading to Santiago. Can I ask you about blisters? I've had a few friends who have walked it and all they've had is big blisters on their feet. So what do you do about, what sort of socks do you wear? <laughs> Um, well, I've never had a um, blister. I take care of the boots, scarpers I wear. I'm onto my third pair now. I had a look at the tread. There's not enough tread for another um, walk, but there's enough for summer. So rather than chuck them out, I sent them back. My socks, I bought them at Woolies. And they were $7 a pair. <laughs> what do you call them? They're sort of explorers. I bought those explorer socks and they were perfectly adequate this year. Only $7. And you could pay, you know, 40 or $50 if you like at the camping shops. Uh, let me say there's every imaginable terrain. The easiest walking is along canal paths. It's dead flat. You walk along the path and you've got lovely shade trees planted a couple of hundred years ago. But then you get some really rugged mountainous um, country, not only going up, 
but then coming down, you know, with loose rocks and all of that, and, and that I've had a couple of fairly spectacular falls. When I first started walking in 2010, I was quite happy to do 25 kilometres a day, even a bit more if necessary. This year, I was happy to walk between 10 and 15. It's my concession to, to old age. And I'm guessing, Noel, that you can, you know, it's, 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 there's no shame in skipping a section if it's too hard. When I first started, I walked every step of the way because um, I regarded myself as a hardcore pilgrim. And what does a hardcore pilgrim do? Walk every step of the way, carry the lot on your back in a backpack. And um, if you offered a lift by someone too politely refused. That was back when I first started, but I soon, you know, learnt <laughs> if somebody offers you a lift, grab it. I'd finish off with some of the people I've met. Now all these people that I'm showing you, I am still in contact with. But I'm only going to talk about one couple. And it's this couple. Uh, there, meet Matt and Laura. Matt was English, Laura was Spanish. I would say to Matt, Matt, you look more like a boyfriend than a husband. In actual fact, they'd been married nine years and they'd been teaching English in Malaysia and India and had finished their contract and were now walking the Camino to decide what the next phase of their life might be. Um, they're also going back to her hometown, which is just near Santiago. I walked with them for about four weeks. Um, I grew to love that couple. Matt reminded me ever so much of my son Stephen, who lives in Rockhampton. Same laconic, laid-back style. And I would say to Matt, Matt, you should have been a Aussie, not a Pom. I used to look out for them. And this was at a stage where I was getting very, very, very tired. And I had the two voices in my head, you know. No, what the hell are you doing this caper for, you know. You should be, you know, on a cruise. And the other voice said, no, what did you come here to do? Kept on going. It was his encouragement got them. And they went out of their way the last day. We missed each other on the last day. And they went out, out of their way to track me down. And here's a farewell photo. And I've kept in touch with them. Guess what the next phase of their life was? Meet Maggie Rose. Laura was pregnant all the time uh, while she was on the Camino, which explained a lot of things to me. When, it, when I heard that Maggie Rose had arrived, I went to the chemist and bought the little uh, Kanga doll. Cost me about five dollars. The postage was about 25. <laughs> and, and each year I've been sending for a birthday some little Australian gift. Anyway, they stayed with her parents for a while and then they moved to Lisbon where Matt got a job teaching English in an English language school there. I'll tell them I was planning to walk from Lisbon and I was going to stop in Lisbon for two weeks and enrol in a Portuguese language school. And I was going to stay in the accommodation provided by the school. Uh, Matt, Matt came the reply, you've got to stay with us. 
So for two weeks, I had two lovely weeks um, with them. And, and here was Maggie Rose. I was Uncle Noel. When I arrived, she was just hanging on to the furniture. And by the time I finished two weeks later, she was running across the room. He chucked his job in Lisbon. I knew he would because he didn't like it. And they're now in a little uh, town about an hour from Santiago and they've opened up an English language school there. Very risky venture. But, you know, they're full of optimism and that. So I took the plane to Santiago and didn't arrive till about midnight. Matt turned up and we drove back to their place. Maggie Rose is now five, typical five-year-old, but she's perfectly fluent in both English and Spanish. She's an excellent reader in English and Spanish. Her parents made sure she could speak Spanish for Grandma. Grandma, Grandpa's only died earlier this year, so Grandma's spending a lot of time with them. Uh, Grandma was worried that she'd be excluded if she only spoke English. So you've got this five-year-old who's completely bilingual. And it was marvellous to see how she'd swap from language to other. And I thought, how lovely, you know, what a beautiful one. And they're thinking now about um, she should be able to speak French. She already knows a little bit. What a wonderful experience there. There we are sharing a meal together. So... Wasn't for the Camino that um, I would never have met that couple, and they're lifelong friends. I, I will talk to other people who've walked the Camino, and they will talk about their lifelong friends too. It's just one of those marvelous identities. It's part of the reason why I keep on walking. Sometimes the bad things that happen in our lives put us directly on the path to the best things that will ever happen to us. I think that the absolutely worst thing that ever happened to me in my life was the suicide of my wife. And see where it's led me. So now, 15 years later, I could never have thought of anything like that in the first year or so, you know. Nothing good can possibly come out of it. But I see how that event has changed my life. And I talk to other people who have lost a loved one from suicide and they will talk about similar. The problem that happens with people who bereave, they shut, shut down and somehow or other, in order to carry on, they need to more or less press themselves into um, going on. I think they call it resilience. Thank you very much for being a great audience. Thank you. Nell Braun speaking about his adventures on the Camino de Santiago. That's a network of pilgrimage trails that lead to the Shrine of St. James, which is in a, a cathedral in Western Spain. Walking the trails gave Noel direction and purpose when late in his life, he lost his wife Maris to suicide. You can find Noel's memoirs through Port Adelaide Enfield Libraries. You can put a copy on hold using the free Libraries SA app, or you can use the online catalogue. Just search for Port Adelaide Enfield Libraries on your internet browser. 
For the latest library news and events, you can also find the Port Adelaide Enfield Libraries on Facebook and Instagram. You could leave us a message there or you can write to shelfesteem at cityofpae.sa.gov.au if you've got feedback or suggestions or ideas for the Shelf Esteem podcast. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to Shelf Esteem wherever you get your podcasts. This edition of Shelf Esteem was recorded at Port Adelaide Library by Rachel Telfer and edited by me, Luke Eigenram, in the Parks Library Media Room. If you're interested in podcasting, come down to Parks Library and see how you can use the media room here to get started making your very own podcasts. And finally, music in this edition was thanks to Lee Rosevere.